When he turned his back from shoulder to shoulder, it looked like as wide as the tailgate of a truck. And this darkness, literal darkness, just came like all over, just, just all over me except where I was standing. This thing let out the most blood-curdling, mind-blowing, spine-tingling scream that you've ever heard in your life, and it cut through me like a knife. And I knew that they were going to take me. I just knew it. And then the next thing I can remember is being levitated. Well, when I look in there, uh, I see two big eyes staring back at me. Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Bump Podcast, a place for the believers of the unexplained, monsters, and paranormal. Join us, and we'll go face-to-face with what goes bump in the night. fun episode for you today it's another one about bigfoot can't seem to get away from that guy um this is the second time i'm attempting to do this interview first time uh internet was sketchy it was horrible but hopefully i got everything fixed now um i'll be switching internet providers here the next couple of weeks but that's another story Uh, today i'm bringing on dr russ jones he's the author of tracking the stone man Uh, showing it right there for you to see um, those of you that don't have Patreon, I guess, just Google it. Tracking the Stone Man, West Virginia's Bigfoot by Dr. Russell L. Jones. Uh, we're going to go over some of the material in his book and, you know, his personal experiences and research that he does uh, to this day with BFRO. Russell, has, uh, he's a wealth of knowledge, and I just really look forward to hearing his insight. So with no further delay, we'll go ahead and bring him on the show. Hey, this is Dr. Russ Jones. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. I'm 56. I'm a chiropractor in Charleston, West Virginia. I've been in practice almost 30 years. Um, I'm a certified master naturalist. I have an undergraduate biology degree, aside from my doctor degree. And I uh, have been interested in Bigfoot since I was a young man. And it's largely shaped a lot of my life, it, um, it decided where I came to practice coming to West Virginia. Um, it shaped where I bought my farm in Ohio. Um, it's decided a lot of my life because as a young man, I had a couple of experiences and I just could not let it go. And, um, you know, so it's always been with me. I can't get rid of it. But what happened to me was, you know, I grew up in this family that we were all woodsmen and outdoorsmen year round. We dug ginseng, we trapped, we had rabbit dogs, we had coon dogs. Um, We hunted everything that was in season. And, um, you know, I killed my first rabbit when I was six, my first deer when I was eight. So, you know, it was a big deal in my family for us to to have that. But um, New Year's Day, we had a very bad winter storm. We got about four inches of snow in Southeast Ohio. 
Um, well, I'm sorry, it was New Year's Eve. And then New Year's Day, I went out hunting and I was with a gentleman that was in the army. And we were coming along a hillside. We had about four inches of snow, like I said, and it was one of those uh, bluebird sunny days. It was just a beautiful day, but really cold. I came along a hillside and I knew that there was a cave up high on this hillside. And when I came along, I saw barefooted human footprints. I did not know that there was such a thing as Bigfoot. I'd never heard of it. The gentleman that was with me, we both looked at the tracks. I just assumed that um, it was a vagrant that was maybe had found that cave way back here in the woods and was living there. And so I walked up to it to see if there was like clothes in it or a fire, but um, you know, there was nothing like that. And I remember him and I stood and talked about it for a long time and um, had decided whether or not to follow the tracks or whatever. And I remember us hearing some type of yell or a noise after being there for a little while, but uh, you know, we just went on and, and kept hunting. And um, later that year, about um, two miles from there across the country, there was a beaver dam that was remote that no one knew it was there except for my family because, you know, the creek in the summer, you could literally jump across. But about a mile and a half or so back in the woods, it was a several acre beaver pond with great fishing. And, um, you know, I had been back there many, many times. I set turtle hooks back there, which if anyone's not familiar with that, you take a large hook and you put a raw chicken gizzard on it and you attach it to a stick and you kind of throw it out in the water and snapping turtles will uh, get on there. And, uh, you know, that was kind of delicacy in the 70s in, in Ohio. And, um, I'd never had an experience, never had anything unusual happen. I was back there with an uncle fishing on that beaver dam. We were both wearing pistols because it was very snaky back there. And I was standing on an edge of the dam where maybe about 40 yards from me was the other bank. And it was very brushy there. And I had heard something coming um, down that hillside. I thought it was probably a deer. And I glanced at my uncle, which was maybe, you know, 30 or 40 feet from me. And I saw him watching too. And it started screaming very monkey-like and shaking the bushes that were over there. You know, it was going, and, you know, I said, what do you think it is? And he said, just look for a tree you can get to. It has to come across the water to get to us. And so it went on for about a minute. And after a minute, it just completely stopped. And, you know, we were raised that uh, there's nothing in the woods that's not more afraid of you than you are of it. So... Uh, we just kept fishing. I uh, never really thought much more of it. Later that year, Leonard Nimoy had the show In Search Of, and like so many other people, I saw the episode In Search of Bigfoot, and then I got suspicious. And um, two more times before I went to undergraduate, I'd found tracks. Uh, once with my father when we were going to fish at roughly the same place, and Another time um, when I was squirrel hunting, I found tracks at the edge of a right away. And um, so, you know, you're going to school. Um, you know, I think I was in college for around 10 years by the time that I'd finished doctor school and I moved to West Virginia. I had literally read every book on Bigfoot that had been read, that had been written at that time. Um, and there was a Bigfoot conference in Ohio. At that time, it wasn't very large, maybe a couple hundred people. And 
uh, Jeff Meldrum was speaking. It was right when his book at first came out. And uh, so I wanted to go up. It was about a two hour drive from Charleston. I drove up for the day and listened to him speak and uh, introduced myself to him and talked to him for a little bit. It was funny. I was coming home and a friend of mine said, well, what'd you think? And I said, well, you know, there were some pretty unique people there. And she said, well, you know, I don't want to be mean, Russ, but, you know, I mean, you went to a Bigfoot conference and, wow. you know, I just laughed and I knew she was right. And uh, so, you know, at that time, if you Google Bigfoot, um, the BFRO would come up, the Bigfoot Research Organization, you know, and at one point getting around a million hits a month and um, about 10 times a year at that point, they were doing conferences or camp out, so to speak, around the country, you know, you'd be interviewed and you'd have to sign these, um, you know, forms that you wouldn't tell anybody where you were going and they want to make sure you were serious. It was pretty expensive. I think it was like maybe 400 bucks even then. And um, I thought, you know, I'm just going to go and, you know, worst comes to worst they're weird and I'm just going to leave. <laughs> and uh, I went and at that point, uh, Matt Moneymaker was going to him. He largely doesn't go to him anymore. He's too busy. But, um, you know, Matt and I just hit it off. And I spent a lot of time with him that weekend. And then after that weekend, I started doing the reports for Ohio and West Virginia in the group. And I would say that, you know, I was pretty sure that I thought that there was something out there. Wasn't completely sure. You know, I hadn't really seen something. Um, but now all these years later, you know, I have to say that I'm, you know, I'm convinced that, you know, indeed there is something out there. It was interesting. The first report that I got um, was a state policeman, a trooper in Raleigh County here in West Virginia, which is, uh, you know, the Beckley area. And so I uh, called him and went and talked to him and, you know, he'd been riding a four wheeler. He liked to um, hunt ginseng. And it was the spring of the year, but he had his wife on the back of the four-wheeler and they were riding a ride away. And then he would go off of it, you know, just looking for places that in the fall when you could hunt ginseng, um, you know, he could do it. But he was just at that point, just kind of looking around. And he told me that he had taken this kind of this path off the right away and he was putting along and he, he said he saw a fire burn stump and he didn't think much of it and continued to putt along and he looked back at it. And he paused and he asked me, have you ever seen one? And I said, no. And he said, think sheet of plywood that large. Wow. He said, I'm not saying that they take people, but people disappear. And it's just so large, Russ, it just, you can't even imagine. And he said, you know, I had a gun, but he said, it never even occurs to you. It's too big. And I'm hitting reverse. Um, on the four-wheeler to get out of there my wife's like what are you doing and he said look 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 and she just started screaming oh my god no oh my god no and you know it was pretty traumatic for that woman she had got some counseling they moved into the town as a town was you know in Beckley West Virginia as opposed to living out in the country and um, you know I took him back there at night where it had happened he was with another state trooper. They both had their guns drawn. He was chain smoking. He was crying. And I thought, you know, he saw something or, yeah. you know, he believes he saw something. And, you know, in West Virginia, we get about, uh, Ohio gets about a report 
maybe two a week. And I'm not saying a legitimate great report, but, you know, just a report that's probably in all likelihood someone has um, misidentified something. Um, or since the TV show uh, Finding Bigfoot was on, I mean, you know, I've helped with that TV show several times and been on it, I think, four times. Um, you know, prior to that show, really, most people didn't even know that Bigfoot really made a sound. Right. I mean, they, you know, some people knew what Bigfoot was, but, you know, then for a long time when that show was on there, all the reports we would get would be like something along these lines. I've been in the woods my whole life. I heard this sound. I've never heard anything like it. And I know all the animals and all, and a lot of them, probably 75% of them were like that. But, you know, in West Virginia, we were probably getting maybe a report every couple of weeks and probably, like I said, the great majority of them are misidentification, but about two or three times a year in Ohio or West Virginia, you would get a report that was remarkable, that was a doctor, a state trooper, a game warden, um, a very experienced, um, you know, bright person that was well-spoken. Yeah. And, um, you know, and you live for those reports. Yeah. And that's one of the interesting things about Bigfoot is, you know, the witnesses really largely don't have anything in common. I mean, the most common sighting is a road crossing. Um, you know, we have one place in West Virginia where there's been five road crossings. That's the most that I know of. Um, Where's that at? But that's on uh, Interstate 64 around Alta uh, near Lewisburg, West Virginia. Okay, that's a good spot. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. You know, I was trying to figure out why there were so many road crossings there. Um, and not very far from there is a um, butcher house. Oh, wow. So, you know, I don't know if it has anything to do with that or whether it's just, um, you know, there's kind of a, uh, some caves through there and, you know, and there's a valley that goes through there, you know, because it's kind of a good place for the wildlife to cross. So I'm not really sure. The second most common place um, that we ever had sightings, um, one would be on the road to Cranberry Wilderness Area, mm -hmm. um, you know, around Falls and Hills that area, Kennison Mountain. And um, then we had uh, up by Seneca Rocks, which is a very beautiful place in West Virginia. Uh, on the steep, steep mountain going into it, one year there was four sightings in one week on the road. Oh my um, Yeah, but, you know, probably in all likelihood with me guessing, you know, it was probably a juvenile male maybe extending his territory. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and that was probably the deal there uh, but now um, you know if I'm seeing patients and I get a call my staff knows that I will you know fortunately I have younger doctors who work in my office but you know I will leave immediately if I think there's a chance for me to go see footprints that are fresh you know or something like that right. I've largely have quit ambulance chasing for years you know I had my game cameras which is kind of what I'm known for, I would say, across the country. You know, I've, I've got 36 game cameras out, all of them expensive. And I had them from the high mountains of West Virginia into South Central Ohio. And I spent most of my free time just visiting, moving cameras. I try to keep them out 
in location for a year at a time, you know, assuming that the animals probably aren't staying in that area all the time that they're kind of moving through. Right. Um, so that's what I've been doing now is, uh, you know, trying to figure that out, still managing all those camera traps. Um, instead of being in Ohio one week, one weekend and next weekend I'm in Otter Creek wilderness area or Cranberry or whatever it happens to be. Now I've limited myself to just two or three areas at a time. And I try to spend all my time and all my cameras in that area. And what that has helped me do is um, know the wildlife better and the people that are in that forest better to get an idea and understanding of how it goes. You know, of course, I want a picture of Bigfoot on one of my cameras, but the reality is I've learned that many times I'm gathering other information that even if I'm not getting a picture of a Bigfoot, because maybe they hear my camera or they smell my camera or that looks like an eye or whatever it happens to be, the reason why we don't get the, the um, picture, you know, I have opinions about that. But, you know, I'll have a camera, for instance, I pulled one last week, you know, uh, if people have seen the big special episode of Finding Bigfoot that's on uh, Discovery Plus, right now, you know, after they were off a couple of years, they did this big, um, you know, reunited type show. And, and, uh, and I'd helped with that show and some of the witnesses on there were mine and, and, um, yeah, you know, I was I'd one of friends them. with those guys. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank yeah, you for that, right. by the way. That was there. fun. Yeah. And so, you know, we, some of our mutual friends, you know, were on the show and they, they spent a lot of time in Canal State Forest yeah. and I'd had cameras in Canal for probably I don't know, 10 years in different parts of the park and had never gotten anything, you know, for whatever reason, I was trying different things out in different areas. And so I put a camera out. There was last summer, you know, we had about four or five different incidents of sightings, footprints being found, that type of thing. And so I moved a camera uh, in closer to the main part of the park where I would never be at. And so I pulled it last week and it had been out 11 months. It took around 3,300 pictures. Wow. Um, and usually a reconics camera with lithium batteries, you know, depending upon how many deer are moving through and, and taking shots up, you know, most of the time I'm getting somewhere between, you know, I'd say nine months and maybe a year and a half almost worth of cameras. You know, sometimes I'm looking at four or 5,000 pictures at a setting. Um, and it's been interesting to be able to do it. You know, like I said, there's things that you don't know. There's some parks that are in Ohio that the rangers know now that there's say wild boar in those parks that they didn't know that were in that park before, or they didn't know they were in that area before. Um, and I have found that many times like in Kanawha, for instance, on the camera that I looked at for 11 months, every single day I had pictures of deer numbering between 20 and 23 every single day. Wow. And so it's like that at a lot of other places I have cameras out. You'll see certain, you know, maybe two or three coyotes that have come through or a bobcat or whatever it happens to be. But a lot of times you'll see these things coming through on a regular type schedule, like the deer being so many, so many a day. But then if you watch and you take notes of what you're doing, you'll find that there's certain times that you won't have those. So I noticed, like, for instance, in Canal, in that area of the park, the first week of September, 
I had no deer for a solid week. That's all. But the whole rest of the 11 months I had, you know, 20 or above every single day. Right. So for me, that would mean that there was something in that area that was messing with the wildlife and disturbing it. And so I keep notes on those and I try to go to those areas in these different parks during that time that something is odd in there. And I'll keep it on my calendar, each park or each set of woods that I'm in or national park or national forest, you know, what time of the year that that happens, I'll keep in there all the Bigfoot sightings that are from me or from different groups. And we'll try to be there at that same time as well. Just trying to increase my odds a little bit of bumping into something yeah. and largely always doing it during the day because, you know, a lot of people have heard me say, you know, just when you're going out at night, you're going out for an experience because there's very, very little evidence that's collected at night. Right. Um, but, you know, I can see where it's important. You know, people are paying for expeditions. That's how we develop the younger people that are going to be the people that continue along to follow us. They go out in the woods, they have an experience, something they can't explain. That's exciting. And, you know, you do that for years and years and years, but at some point you've had enough experiences and you just want to have, um, you want to get to the bottom of it. Right. Yeah. And so then at that point, you know, I, I find I don't go um, to as many seminars or, you know, that type of thing that I was, that I would do, I was getting where I was speaking all the time. And it was funny two years ago, I was speaking at the large Ohio gathering, which, you know, went from a couple hundred people to where a few years ago, they had 6,000 people through there on the weekend and they had four speakers. And then it was, um, I don't even remember exactly who it was other than I know that it was myself. And I think Jeff Meldrum was there and I think Cliff Berrickman was there and someone else would have been there. And so I was having lunch with Cliff and we were talking and he's like, you know, so what do you got going on now? And I was, and I was saying, well, you know, I got 30 something cameras out and I have these feed stations I've got out. I've got these places that I'm putting rocks and marbles and cliffs and overhangs and I've got mirrors out in the woods, large mirrors that are hanging in different angles and stuff. I said, I'm just trying all these things. And he's like, man, I don't hardly get to go out anymore. You know, I'm speaking all the time. And I was listening to him and I thought, I don't have to do this. I already got a job. Right. Yeah. And uh, so when I got back, I canceled several more places that I was scheduled to speak. And I said, I'm just not doing this for a while. You know, I've got a second book um, coming out. I don't know. I'll probably get done with, I'm 150 pages in now. So probably later this year or over the winter, I'll get done with it. And, you know, then maybe I will do some speaking again, but, you know, I really just want to be in the woods. I am not as patient as being at conferences where, you know, we're just talking about it. You know, I want to actually be out there and, and try to resolve it and try to come up with, you know, yeah, something it, you know, it gets, uh, it gets frustrating. And I think that that's how people do as we age in Bigfoot world, you know, you start out and you're young and you're hungry and maybe you're, um, you know, you're single and you don't have children. And then as time goes on, life becomes more complicated and with your job and with your personal life and everything else that, you know, you're trying to juggle all that in and, you know, cause it's not like anybody's really researching Bigfoot for a living. Right. Um, you know, there's probably a few people like 
Cliff or maybe um, I don't even know who else would be maybe Bobo that are making a living doing it, you know, through some means, but, you know, largely all the rest of us, uh, Jeff Meldrum, um, you know, all of us have jobs that are our priority. Yeah, Cause it's an expensive hobby too. I mean, uh, yeah. And it's a very expensive passion. If you, if you get into it as deep as like you are, like you're saying, these Reconyx cameras, you know, I hunt, I have a couple of game cameras, but I'm not sticking Reconyx out there. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, yeah. It, you know, I have, uh, I think 32 Reconyx and, uh, they started the HC 600s several years ago and then it went to HC 500s. Now they have the Hyperfire, and the Hyperfires are cheaper. So they're like 399 bucks. And then of course you put a, um, Cobra Python lock on them, which is like 20 bucks, you know, so you've got a lot of money invested yeah. and you put, uh, 12 lithium batteries in it, which are 20 bucks and you're, you know, maybe another 10 bucks for your SD card and you have a lot out there, but, you know, largely when most of my cameras were in West Virginia, I wasn't, um, I was seldom ever losing a camera. And to be honest, I went about five years where I didn't even see a human on any of my cameras. I was in such remote locations. Wow. And, um, but as time has changed and I've evolved my strategy, um, particularly in Ohio, you know, there's one park right now I have 11 cameras in and I shift them according to the time of year where I know certain things happen, just trying to get a picture. But, you know, as for instance, um, you know, just this past year, I had five cameras in this close area because, you know, there had been some sightings and I'd heard some things when I had been in there, I had heard the samurai chatter. I had heard wood knocks myself and, um, I had two cameras that during two different weeks in a six month period had no deer, had no nothing. The same thing that I was telling you previously that made right. me suspicious, you know, that they were, they were in there during that time, but it was interesting. I was, I was telling you before that I had this recently had this thing happen, the story. Um, I had lost a camera in this area and this is the second most remote area in all of Ohio. And I have probably four area, four cameras out in the most remote area. And then, you know, several cameras out in this other area. Well, I've been putting peanut butter out, um, you know, Tom Shea, which is, you know, he's a researcher in Kentucky and Tom has probably got more footprint casts than anybody in the nation so far. And, you know, I had talked to him quite a few times on occasion and he was talking about that. And I thought, you know, what's the harm in putting Nutella or um, peanut butter out? And so I would just go to Dollar General or wherever and, you know, it was a buck for a jar and I duct tape it to a tree. Some I would put a camera on, some I would not put a camera on, just mixing things up. And um, a year ago, next month, I lost a camera. Um, I'm not exactly sure how the camera disappeared. Um, I don't know if, um, you know, at one point I believe that if people took those um, master tool type things that they could kind of pry them off. Right. And so I wasn't sure if, you know, if something had taken it off or if that happened, but I had a really good setup in this remote location 
that I cut these branches and trimmed them. And so it was really hidden. And I put these collared rocks on this stump and I was just trying to get something to mess with them. Well, the camera disappeared. And so, you know, I still have other cameras out in there. And then of course I have peanut butter, you know, maybe two or three out there. I don't remember exactly how many. And several months ago, I had one of my peanut butters disappear. And um, Tom had told me his experience had been that uh, the peanut butter would disappear. Then after a period of time, you would find the peanut butter in the general area with the lid back on, but it would be empty. What? And yeah, so I really had not had an experience where something had taken my peanut butter. But, you know, like as a researcher, I think we had to try all these things. You know, we yeah. got to come up with different ideas. We just can't keep doing the same thing. So, you know, we should be sitting down trying to come up with dozens of ideas of different things of looking at different things. Like for instance, the cameras, I think that they hear, I think there's some studies that show that, you know, the Chinese have some rain forest that have some endangered species in. they're trying to find some undocumented, you know, they tested all the game cameras, in the United States, they found out the reconics was the least noisy because you can imagine the noisier something is, it's wasting energy. So as a result, the battery life is not as long. Right. And so um, the average camera is around 30 decibels. So for you and me, we probably can't hear it, but younger kids probably could hear it. So yeah, probably yeah. animals probably hear it. So now, you know, I've concentrated on trying to get those cameras maybe closer to noise makers like, you know, creeks or different things like that. But but nonetheless, so I lost this peanut butter finally, had no idea. Well, I was out in the woods coming through this deer trail. I got to the tree where I had lost the camera on a year ago. And the lid of my peanut butter was leaning up against the tree. But the <laughs> peanut butter had been three quarters of a mile away. That's pretty incredible. So, yeah, so it was interesting, you know, like, I, I think that they're one of the reasons why we don't get pictures of them is I just don't think that they're as common as what people think they are, you know, in West Virginia and Ohio, you know, maybe there's 125, 150 or so just guessing. Yeah. And so, you know, that would mean there'd be like a family group in each County. And so you can imagine like, you know, 25 miles by 25 miles and your dog gets loose. It's hard to find. Imagine if it's an animal that, has been raised there that's well you know they're curious of humans but generally leery of humans and they've been raised to know where people go and where people don't go i mean it'd be hard to to get around them so you know i don't think that they're in the woods every time we go i don't think that they always know you know that we're there when they go um you know they're so large that um you know it'd be hard for one area to sustain enough food but it makes sense to me that um you know that they would kind of I don't believe really in kind of a um, a migration type thing so much as say they were moving through an area that's maybe a couple counties or something and they're following, um, you know, Bo's Orchard has apples in September and his family, you know, some other family in 50 miles away or 20 miles away has an enormous garden and, um, you know, maybe the salmon are running in a certain area at a certain time. 
And, um, you know, there's just different things. And I think that they're, because they're large, I think a lot of their life revolves around food and they're moving along with that food. So it's hard to imagine they'd stay in one particular area unless there might be somebody like uh, somebody that's feeding them unwilling, unknowingly or, or knowingly a habituator. Right. Um, largely, you know, that would be the only way it would probably happen. But um, it was funny. I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, Brad Kennan out of Ohio, and I told him about that peanut butter lid being there. And he said, well, to me, um, they were telling you that they didn't like your camera, but they did like your peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Hey, well, let me ask you. Um, like I said, I, I've read your book. It's one of the few books that I've actually read twice. You know, I just want to pull out as much as I could for, you know, you have a lot of like solid information in here. You know, you get into real good descriptions. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. And you. reading it, it's very clear and you make no bones about it that this is a primate, nothing more, nothing less. You said, uh, how did you land on that? I'm like, I, I know you're a doctor. I know you, you follow a scientific approach, but what, what brought you to land solidly on primate, especially like we were talking before I started recording. There's so much, uh, the, the, the big trend of the woo factor going on with lights being a company accompanied with Bigfoot sightings and footprints just dead ending in the middle of an open field, you know, those kind of things. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not here to question you. I'm just asking, you know, oh, for sure. your insight, cause you got a lot more experience out there than I, than I do or ever will probably. So. Yeah, I, I understand. I mean, you know, it's interesting say largely probably one of the very first people that was interested in the, paranormal aspect was Tom Powell, which is a mm -hmm. friend of mine from California. And of course, Tom has written a couple of great books and, you know, is really a bright, cool guy that, you know, I like and admire. Um, but he was in the BFRO then would, would take some of those reports that everybody else was ignoring because they were weird. <laughs> um, but largely, we did not see woo become popular, common until the last several years. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, it was strictly a flesh and blood type thing. And then all at once, this has exploded. I think that this is just my opinion. Yeah. Um, I think that people are not in the woods much anymore. Um, I hardly know anyone that's very much in the woods at all. Maybe some hunters that, you know, they bow hunt a little bit and they gun hunt a little bit. But other than that, they're not much in the woods. But um, you know, here in West Virginia, it's rare for people to be farther than a quarter mile from the nearest road or trail. And in fact, uh, Pennsylvania did a study with GPS and they found that, you know, as there over 99% of the hunters never went farther than a quarter mile from the road or trail. And I think that that's the way it is for most people. I mean, yeah. we're at a time in society where people are afraid of getting lost. They're afraid of the dark. They're afraid of snakes. Um, they don't want to shoot a deer over a hillside and have to drag it up the hillside. Um, people don't have as much time as what they did. And quite frankly, hunting isn't as popular. And so I don't believe that, you know, for instance, like yesterday I was on Twitter and some guy posted this tree break 
And so, you know, he's like, shows a picture of a tree break. And I said, I sent a message and said, well, you know, how you know it's a Bigfoot, man? He's like, you know, the angle is broke. I've seen many like this before. But, you know, the, the woods is full of tree litter is what I call it. Yeah. That um, Joe Beelart, the Red Oregon Bigfoot Highway, said that maybe one in a million tree breaks mean something in the woods. I believe that the um, primates, the higher primates, some of them do strict stick structures and break things and mark things and things like that. But let's face it, if they did it all the time and if it was common, our forefathers would have recognized it and they would have hunted them all down like they did everything else. That's true. And these guys, you know, our great, great grandfathers, they were good in the woods. They recognized the trees, how the animals ate. And now people aren't like that. I mean, I see those things in the woods and I, and I always wonder, does that person even know what kind of tree that is? Do they even know what kind of uh, diseases attach that tree? I mean, are they carrying, like a lot of times I have a little magnifying glass that I'm looking at breaks and, you know, they look clean and it looks like a good tree, but once you get under a microscope, you can tell it's diseased or it has animals or little bugs that you couldn't see otherwise. And so I think that people go out, they don't have anything happen. And then they start attaching something woo to it. Um, and I can say that uh, as much time as I've been in the woods, which is a lot of time every single week, year round, that I have never had something happen to me that I could not explain. Now, I'm not discounting what other people have said that they have experienced. Right. I personally have just never had anything like that happen. And I still take the reports and I still listen to what people say. But, you know, what has been my experience is people have a sighting or something they believe that is Bigfoot related. And then everything becomes Bigfoot related. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so I think that woo is lazy. Woo is an excuse. It is. Uh, because we're not the woodsmen that we used to be and because we're not in the woods that much. Um, I mean, some of these expeditions, you know, that I go on or that, you know, I'm being paid to go on and lead people. I mean, people think everything is a Bigfoot, you know, every little sound in the woods or something they hear, you know, people are just not familiar with what the animals are like and what they sound like in the woods or whatever it happens to be. Um, you know, now that being said, I think that the old timers were unaware of noises and sounds that Bigfoot made. And I think many of them probably had experiences, but because they didn't know about it or recognize it, um, just didn't know. I can remember when I would be coon hunting with my grandfather and we could hunt all the time and would, you know, we would have hundreds of coons that we had harvested each year. That's how often we were out. And, you know, we would be laying in this remote forest in Ohio where there's nothing but a gravel road for miles with no lights on, sitting on a hillside eating an apple waiting for our dogs to bark and would hear a wood knock. And I can remember that number of times. And I'd ask my grandfather what it was. And he would say that it was the way the hollows ran. It made car door slamming funny and noises funny. And it was a car door from some distance away. But, you know, he that's what he believed. Right. Um, now, I think that if he was still alive and he had a chance to talk to me, 
and spend time or maybe just had more experience, you know, maybe there have been some other things that he would have felt differently about. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's natural. People, if they haven't experienced it or they, they had, they rationalize it by what they know, you know, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's just, you know, here we're having something that, you know, we're trying to convince scientists that there's something else out there and, you know, it requires extraordinary proof. And not only do we not really have the extraordinary proof, then we have groups of people inside our um, body of Bigfooters, largely a citizen science scientist group that um, are talking about things that um, scientists aren't comfortable with. And there are scientists that are interested in Bigfoot and that talk about it privately. Um, but they don't want to be involved with, um, you know, the orbs or, you know, some of the different things that, you know, people associate with that. And like I said, I mean, I know there's really bright people have had experiences happen and, um, you know, and I'm not sure how they explain that, but as soon as I will have something happen, then maybe, you know, I will have a, a, some type of belief about that. Right. Yeah. But But I still think it's important to talk to them. I still am think that we should hear we should take the notes we should hear what they're saying we should look at it it should be included in our body of work or whatever it happens to be but um I, it's it's clouded the research that's out there right now another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I want to take just a minute to tell you guys about SquatchSurvivalGear.com. If you're into camping bushcraft, survival, prepping, or just looking for an everyday carry, SquatchSurvivalGear.com has everything you need. They have the gear to help you survive the worst day of your life. You know, it's just to help you be ready. Uh, For me, I have the Rock Ape Pack. It's one of the backpacks that they offer. It is, it's a good size bag. You know, I I took it out on my last trip for for a four-day camp. And everything I needed fit in there. Um, they have things that go from that size down to like a sling bag. They have a bigger bag, you know, like the Grassman or the Yowie. Uh, 
if you haven't noticed, they have cool names too. You know, they're named after you know these cryptids, the Minahuni. Uh, they, 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 they got it all. But the gear itself is 100% made in America. Every component is made in America. Um, the guy that's designing them and making them here, his name is Chris. He's been on my show a couple times. But he's a, uh, he's a veteran, and he went with the gear that he used while in military service and reconfigured it to, to be even better and made it available you know, to the civilian sector. Top-of-the-line gear, absolutely bomb-proof. I love it. Best I've ever had in my life. You know, I've, I've had Camelbacks. I've had L.L. Bean. I've had uh, some some really high-end stuff. But this Squatch Survival gear, it just it steals the show. Uh, it's fantastic gear. So go to SquatchSurvivalGear.com. You can use promo code BUMP10 and save 10% on anything on the entire site. Yep. Yep. You want to get down to the, uh, the fundamentals before you want to entertain all this extra stuff, right? You want to, yeah, I mean, um, I've never seen, I probably find tracks like, you know, in Ohio, West Virginia and Appalachia, it's not easy to find tracks, you know, if we have leaf litter everywhere, Mm -hmm. our hills are steep. So I would say about three or four times a year, I would find a track that was as good as what you would see on the internet. But, you know, it would be rare for you to find more than a couple of tracks. Um, And, you know, I'd say that I'm probably aware of, say, last year, maybe 15 or 20 tracks found in Ohio or West Virginia. Um. But, you know, let's say that you have a track and you want to send it to somebody like uh, Jeff Meldrum, which, you know, is obviously who everybody would consider the expert on on footprints. I mean, you know, it's gotten to a point now that, you know, unless Jeff knows you personally, he's probably not going to say he's going to say something like, well, it's interesting or it's compelling. You know, he's not able to say definitively, you know, what it's going to be. Well, one reason is. Dr. Meldrum's come out and he's told you all these things that he looks for. So if there is a hoaxer out there, they're going to try to up their game to match the things that he's, you know, identified, you know, with the dermal ridges and all that stuff and the, the break in the foot. And, you know, so yeah. he has to be more skeptical to people he doesn't know. It just, makes you know, we've had funny. some people that have produced some fake tracks that are compelling that have that experts have been wrong on um but just from a common standpoint standpoint it just doesn't seem reasonable to me that there's um for instance um in nature you know we find that everything it's a law of nature that everything largely is larger as you get farther from the equator so a deer that's in florida is smaller than a deer in canada and so forth and so on um it's escaping me now. It shouldn't be. It's in my book and I talk about it all the time, but what the name of the law is, but, um, you know, does it make it reasonable sense then that, that people that are faking or hoaxing that they know that an average track found in the South on average is smaller than the average track that's in the North and they're reproducing it that way. I mean, I just don't believe that. And I don't believe that people will, fake a track that's four miles from the nearest trail 
you know, because what are the odds that someone like me, as much as I'm out, is going to come across that exact spot? I mean, I believe that these these animals are cognizant. Uh, mountain lions, um, monkeys are cognizant of leaving their footprints. Yeah. And um, I remember I took this one report. You know, it was around Lewisburg, West Virginia. And this logger was out. He had broken down on his bulldozer and he was messing with his bulldozer and he had sent his guys to get apart. When his guys came back and they're driving through these fields and stuff, and when they topped this mountain, they looked down and this guy was out in an opening working on his dozer and there was a forest completely around him. Well, where they came over the hill in this field, they thought it was a bear and it was, you know, it was a couple hundred yards from that guy but it was peeking around a tree. I mean, imagine how cagey that is. I mean, the guy's working on something. He's not looking around. Even if he looks around, he's not going to see something standing in this forest. But, you know, here's something that's a couple hundred yards away peeking mm -hmm. to see the guy. And then uh, they thought it was a bear. And then, you know, it turned and saw him or whatever, and then it took off running. They realized it wasn't a bear. And when it got to their logging road, their landing road, it jumped it you know, rather than just running like it would normally, you know, people would, you know, right. it jumped it cognizant of not leaving a footprint. Yeah. And so I can't tell you how many loggers that, you know, have came into my office as patients over the years that they all know that I'm interested and they're at dozers parked, you know, so far back in when they get to work each day, you're usually not driving it out. And I'm like, well, you know, every day when you walk in those roads, I need you to look for me. And if you see something that isn't a bear track you know i need to know about it and of course in west virginia bears are common there's around seventeen thousand of them in ohio ohio is probably one of those states with you know around 100 resident bears now there might be more bigfoot than there are bears right which may be the only state in the country that's like that um so you know but i've developed some of my own beliefs and theories that have helped me um find things over the years, you know, I talk about um, perches in a book. Um, it's a coin, a term that I coined. Um, and I found it many, many times. And what that is, is I believe that um, they go after trash. They go after, you know, like say if there's a place on a lake that's a dead end road and a bunch of people fish there, or maybe people park there and they throw out their trash or um, say in, uh, park like canal they have a shooting range and it's at the end of a dead end road and there's a trash can there i believe they visit things like that yeah. and so they will go to a location before dark that they can see to see you know kind of reminds me of a bird sitting in his perch looking down or looking about so that they can see when people leave and no one is there and many times when you go to those locations um, you know, if you're looking at a map of a lake, you know, you can just pick out a spot that looks like what I'm talking about. You know, it's usually always corrected, connected to a large wood. So like, let's say that we were looking at, um, you know, Summersville Lake or Selesky in Ohio or wherever it happens to be, and you're looking at it on a map, you can see there's areas of a campground that, you know, it would be dangerous for something to get into. It'd be easy for them to be seen, but you can spot an area or two of the park where there's a lot of woods coming there that they'd be able to sneak into that area comfortably. And that's the areas, you know, that I would concentrate on when I pull up there. I'm like, okay, if 
uh, Cliff Berkman would say, you know, if he was a sniper, where would he sit at or whatever? Wow. I call it a perch. And so, you know, I drive into these areas and then, you know, usually there's one or two things. And if you get up in the woods and look, a lot of times, you know, you'll be able to find something. I remember one time I was doing an interview for a magazine and the gentleman brought a park map and had me pick out two locations. And so we went to this park to look for what I was talking about. Well, one was around a campground. It was during the winter, so it was closed. The gate was closed. We couldn't get in. Well, we went to the other one where uh, I had picked out. And I'd picked it because there was two, like, shelter houses. It's in a remote area of the park. And if you were up in the woods, you could literally go for several miles crossing no roads or paths. So it was a good place to get into. And, you know, if a Bigfoot is in that area, and let's say there's a playground and, you know, people are eating and stuff, I mean, how could it resist, you know? Right. being up in the woods watching and, you know, maybe at night trying to scavenge some of that food. And, you know, so we went there and I asked that um, writer, I said, so, you know, if you were here and you were going to watch people, you know, where would you be at? And he pointed out the spot and I said, okay, well, let's go up and look. And we went up there and we found behind a tree, there was a bunch of glass that had been broken and it was stacked in a stack of rocks. And there was a golf ball that was up in the woods that was sitting right on this mound of dirt that, you know, if it was a quarter inch, either way, it would roll off. Yeah. And so, you know, is it evidence of Bigfoot? No, but it's compelling. And so you would periodically go back to that spot to see whether or not something is up there, something has changed. Maybe you put out a game camera there to see if you can get lucky and get a picture of something. Um. So that's the type of things, you know, that I would keep on my calendar all the time. So if I have, say, a date in July and I haven't had an experience or no one's had a sighting, then I'm going to these locations like that that I suspect that they could be at. And in just a couple of minutes, I can usually walk around to see whether or not, because they're not everywhere, right. you know, so, you know, I can find out whether or not they're visiting that spot and try to figure out when it is. That's great. That's great. And I... I've actually taken that advice. My father-in-law, he's got about a hundred acres, you know, in Logan County. It's all woods. Yeah. And uh, last year I went out and looked for a couple of perches and I, you know, I found the areas like you were describing. I didn't find much else. You know, I might find, you know, some, some looks like an area where something might've bedded down or something like that, but I'm, I'm taking your advice. You know what I mean? That's what I'm trying to get at. I yeah. take your advice. I'm looking around with that. Um, a lot of times you'll see little sticks where they've broken off. Uh, you know, they're standing behind the tree and they're just piddling around, yeah. you know, but I mean, I, I think the first thing whenever I'm going to a siding or a location is I'm always thinking, you know, why on all the places that we could be, and, you know, and I think I told you before that I had the biggest hoax case I ever saw came out of Logan, West Virginia, <laughs> down your way. And, um, you know, and so when I went there, just like many places, I'm looking around, I'm thinking, you know, why is a Bigfoot going to be in this location? You know, I mean, what is it that's so, so spectacular? Or when I have a road crossing somewhere up in the mountains, I'm thinking, you know, why is he going to be here? You know, what is it that, um, you know, would cause them to be interested in? You know, and another thing I talk about is treat foods. So, like, some of the people that are interested in Bigfoot would say, well, you know, they're eating deer. So, if you can find a big deer herd, then, you know, there's a good chance there'll be Bigfoot around. Well, in Appalachia, I mean, that's not helpful. There's deer everywhere. everywhere. Deer are very common and they're, they're everywhere. So it's just not a helpful thing. But 
what is helpful if you start thinking about water food sources that aren't readily available all year that would be a treat for something to have especially a sugar which is hard to find you know in nature so then if you start thinking about like so you know here we are in july ohio and west virginia through appalachia our berries are becoming ripe yeah so you know you're thinking about uh right of ways that four wheelers can't get to that have large berry populations that you'd have to walk a little bit to get to that has a history of bigfoot sightings in the general area yeah. um you know apple trees uh orchards that are um you know, ripe at whatever time they get ripe. You know, we have ramps, we have mushrooms. Um, you know, mushrooms are around um, largely December is about the hardest year month to get them. But other than that, they're around mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, you know, but looking for those food sources that they can't find. Um, for instance, I'm very interested in right now, the parks are full. I'm interested in parks that have a lot of campgrounds and cabins that have dumpsters and things like that with large woods attached to them yeah it's something that you just just now mentioned cabins with dumpsters a few years ago and i didn't put it together till we were sitting here talking um and i'm not saying it was bigfoot either but up here at chief logan um on the wild night the wildlife preserve on the other side here they put up a series of cabins well a few years ago while they were finishing up the cabins there's a a dirt road that they have blocked off now i'm sure that i used to go out and go hunting on um anywhere in that wildlife management area is fair game you know you you hunt like a regular season well i went back there and it was like it was between a half to a full mile between a half mile to a full mile in a direct shot from those cabins i found a trash can you know, that has, was pulled off a of site, you know, was, you, you can see like fast food stuff down in it. And at that time I thought, man, a, you know, a bear really went out of its way to drag this can this far. Yeah. You know, and that's just where I left it, you know, like, well, there must be a bear around. I'm, I'm not bear hunting. I'm looking for a deer, you know, that's right. But, uh, I, I think I you're right. I think a lot of people, unless they had a Bigfoot knowledge, because most of us in bear country would say, you know, bears aren't dragging trash cans a half mile away or a mile away. You know, they're dumping it over and going through everything right then, just like raccoons are. You know what I mean? So it's not evidence of Bigfoot, but it's certainly suspicious and something to keep in mind. You know, that they were during the weather, whenever they were allowing those camper people to be in there. Um, you know, like I might have talked to the park ranger and say, ah, I found the trash can. It was when did you guys lose that? Just to find out, you know, when it was. So, you know, then it makes me suspicious they're following that particular um, trail or area. I mean, I had, as you know, cameras in Chief Logan for years. And the area I think that you were talking about is near the Wilderness Trail. Mm-hmm. And then they put that road up over the mountain, which is like got to be the steepest road in West Virginia. Yeah, the, the worst. And, uh, yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's sad because I know it made access to people to be able to get to the lodge to eat and stuff, but man, they, they took some of the most remote areas right there in the park out. Yeah. It went right uh, but, through the wilderness trail. Yeah. And you know, there was, um, there's elk down there, even before they started releasing elk in West Virginia, there was elk around Chief Logan area and I'd seen elk poop and man, I never even got an elk on one of my cameras. Um, you know, and I was looking for them or trying to get it. Right. Um, 
but you know, there's a lot of places in different in Appalachia states that are hard to get to in West Virginia, Panther Creek State Park has a history of Bigfoot sightings. Yeah. Horrible place to get to from anywhere in, in West Virginia. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's um, you know, and then we have places, um, Chief Logan is a great place for people to go. There's always reports that come out of Chief, Lo Chief Logan, particularly in the fall, there'll be um, sound noises come out of there. I have been uh, two different times. I've heard wood knocks in Chief Logan, um, but have not seen anything in there um, like so many things. But, you know, some of my friends say, well, you know, what if you would find if you got to the end of your life and and you were lucky enough to make it to heaven and you know of course the first question out of your mouth after you say thank you is you know is there bigfoot and <laughs> um you know and, and if what if he said no there's no such thing or it doesn't exist or whatever then you know i mean in my mind i just enjoy being in the woods so much that it wouldn't have been a loss for me because just that time is worth so much to me and you know really i'm not whole in my personal life if i'm not getting out enough, you know? And so for me, that means at least two to three days a week, I'm trying to be out for several hours. And then um, at least every couple of months, I'm gonna be off a week and I'm gonna try to spend most of that whole week in the woods. That's the way to live, man. That's the way to live. Yeah. I, don't, I don't get to take that much time away from the family, but I, I do take a couple of weeks out of the year just to go out. You know, I, I'll go camp a little bit, go fish every opportunity I get and hunting season, you know, it's, it's on the weekends basically, but I try to go almost every weekend. But yeah, man. Do you ever well, get to the point where you get consumed though? Like with, uh, uh, you know, especially like the Bigfoot thing, you know, you want to, you know, no more. I mean, for instance, there was um, um, three weeks ago now, it might've been four weeks there was a sighting of a juvenile Bigfoot on the road going to Babcock State Park in West Virginia and two cars following each other that didn't know each other, both witnessed it and saw it. Wow. Yes. And it was a three foot tall Bigfoot running across the road that was an orangish brown collar. Wow. And, um, you know, so you get those and you know, people that don't live in Appalachia, you know what I mean? In Appalachia, every place is a good place for Bigfoot and could be anywhere. Yeah. And so it's tempting to go running up there, but I've been to these sites many, many times, many times hours after the sighting. And, you know, the Bigfoot's not there. You might have found the footprint, um, but, you know, you just, you wouldn't find anything. I can remember one year I was, uh, had went to this place and I gotten called and, uh, this lady was a teacher and she went outside, she had a headache. And um, when she stepped outside, she smelled a smell. And, you know, of course that's common with, you hear it with Bigfoot. The reality is about 15% of the reports have a smell associated with it. And people generally believe, you know, the great apes will have a gland called an apomere gland that when something is frightened or is something is nervous, it puts the smell off. And, um, you know, so sometimes those of us that have been to woods, you know, we'll smell something or whatever, but it may or may not be associated with Bigfoot activity. And so she stepped out on there. She said that she told me that she thought that her dogs had gotten a creek and they were always laying underneath her porch. And she thought all oh, dogs got underneath the porch again or in the creek again. 
And when she looked up, she had a dust of dawn light and standing there, she said, was a Bigfoot just standing there looking at her, not very far, maybe 40 yards from her. And as soon as they made eye contact, it just started walking and it walked through the freshly tilled garden that they had. And so, you know, the next day, then I was up there um, to look at it. But it was funny. I mean, I think that, you know, people are as interested about the Bigfoot people as they are about the Bigfoot himself. You know, they're curious about yeah. you know, who's going to show up at their house. That's the Bigfoot guy. <laughs> Probably. And um, so that's why I was saying earlier, you know, just, you know, I, if I had some advice, it would be to choose a spot that has a history that you can get to, to spend time regularly mm -hmm. and spend as much time as you can in that location and get to know that area better rather than just being all over the place. And I know my good friend, Matt Pruitt, Matt has said the same thing. And I know him and I both had regrets that we spent a lot of years ambulance chasing reports, you know, just a good report would come in and, you know, you'd be just wanting to get there and, um, you know, like one time a logger, he had this guy with him and this guy was the youngest sheriff in the history of Florida. And he was from West Virginia. He retired. He was pretty young, but he came back home and he went with this logger just to spend the day driving, just to catch up and talk with him. They're driving along this road and there's a Creek next to the road and a kind of a brushy field next to it. And then one guy is looking across there. And when he got down the road, he stopped about a hundred feet. And he said, did you just see what I saw? And the guy said, did you see Bigfoot down on one knee drinking out with water out of his hand? And he said, yeah, that's what I saw. Oh, my and, um, you know, so when you hear that, you know, I, you know, I just have to go. Yeah. man. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and so, you know, I'm there and I'm at that spot and I'm looking around, but you know what I mean? Like, there's just nothing, nothing there anymore. But I mean, a lot of times it just, it, it haunts you like the place where I had experiences where, you know, I got yelled at when I was younger, probably a couple times a year, I will walk into that place before dark and just sit, you know, it's when you're an outdoorsman, a woodsman. And you've always spent your life in the woods, annoying everybody in your family because you're walking down a creek and you're like, what kind of track is that? What kind of track is that? It's a red fox. Well, how do you know it's not a gray fox? How can you tell the difference? You know, just <laughs> bothering these people that are in your life that are woodsmen too. And then you have an experience happen to you that you can't explain and it just eats at you and shapes your life, affects where you live, how you spend your free time. Um, I think that, you know, when I was writing the book, my whole thought was, you know, like when I, I went over what I believe that Bigfoot probably was, it was a few pages. I could have literally done pages on every single one, but it wasn't the point. The point I was trying to get was that if just someone just sat down and read your book and you just laid out some of the evidence that was around and, and some that you found compelling that by the time they got to the end of the book, they'd say, you know, who knows? I mean, maybe, right. you know, maybe it's something we should look at. Um, as opposed to, um, you know, people in New York City. I mean, it's funny in Appalachia, the Pacific Northwest, 
you know, around two thirds of the people believe in Bigfoot. But if you take the national numbers, it's like 27% or 30%, depending on where you read. But, you know, they're including people that live in Miami Beach and Chicago and New York. Right. I mean, they've never in their whole lives been in a woods quarter mile from the nearest road or trail or spent time somewhere. But yet they, you know, have an opinion about this um, animal. Um, you know, in one interview I was doing, the, the gentleman said, well, it just seems like that if something was like out, it was like that out there, we would have found it. I'm like, man, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, who someone is. I mean, there's no one in the woods. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, there used to be, and it was really common, but you know, it's just not that common anymore. There's a lot of places that, um, that people weren't around. I mean, I can tell you because of literally a decade of running double digit cameras in the most remote areas there's places in even places like ohio that have a large population that only see a person maybe one person or two people in a whole year will go past a spot um i'm sure there's places where you know there's not any but i mean you know the point being is that you know there's places in west virginia where you can go you know, 17 or 18 miles in between roads, yes. um, very steep, inhospitable terrain that's full of um, briars and brush and snakes and everything else that people are just are not getting to. Yeah. Um, so certainly there's plenty of room for them. There's plenty of food for them. Um, I think that the only argument that people make largely is, you know, why we don't have a body and other than that argument there, there's really not a reasonable argument. I mean, anybody that's a naturalist or a scientist knows there's plenty of food. You know, if elk and deer and bear and everything else are surviving year round, then these animals could too. Right. Um, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, how they're going about it and how they're doing it. Yeah. And over the last 30 years, our bear population has boomed, you know, and I, I think it was, uh, was it cliff that associates you know bear population versus sasquatch population if there's like 50 black bear there you know 50 to one kind of ratio or something like that it's 100 to one 100 to one um i think that was uh, grover kranz the um professor from washington state anthropology oh, that had okay. posed that um and the bfro has you know another number that they look at and it's slightly lower. So I know using those two numbers in West Virginia, the number would be between 150 to 225 Bigfoot right. using that number. And I think that that seems like a reasonable number. I mean, it's funny because that seems to a lot of people like a large number, but when you say there's 17,000 bears and you ask, you know, when's the last time you saw a bear? Um, I mean, people don't commonly see them. Right. Um, you know, most people aren't around that much unless you're in some park where people are feeding them and the bears are hanging out there or at a mine a lot of times people will feed the bears and keep them around um so i think that um you know it's, it would be a similar similar type thing you know they're omnivores they're eating they're opportunistic you know they're eating whatever they can they're eating roadkill they're eating in dumps and um i think that it's appealing for them once they get that taste of sugar just as humans have 
gotten addicted to the sugar, I think that they would too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard to find a honey tree in nature and it's hard to find berries beyond, you know, a couple of weeks. Right. Um, you know, so I think that they're after those, uh, leftover cheeseburger buns, um, and things like that, that the campers have around. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. Well, Russ, I really appreciate you doing this with me. I've already had you on here for over an hour and, um, this is the second time you've done this. So it's, I really appreciate it. Um, we'll go ahead and wrap things up for this time. Is there anything that you want people to know any, any place you want them to go to find your book? Um, any, any more information on the release of your next book? They can find the book on uh, Amazon or eBay, all the state parks in West Virginia, uh, Tamarack. I'll have the book. Um, you know, I, it sold over 5,000 copies, which is really good for a Bigfoot book. Yes, it is. Um, it'll, um, especially a regional one. Um, so the next book probably be next year. It's interesting. The publisher was trying to get me to do one on all of Appalachia. My plan was to go to, um, say I went to Tennessee and I talked to Matt Pruitt or whoever I considered the best investigator from that state. Then I tried to interview the witness that had the best report from that state. And then I would spend a day and a night in their best territory and write it. And that would be a chapter. But the honest thing, interesting thing is that, you know, you just, you're so busy just trying to get everything done that it's, um, it's a challenge to visit all your cameras, um, live your life, um, you know, just do all these things. So um, I'm not sure that I'm going to do all of Appalachia. I think it's going to be a more broader sense of, you know, how to try to get closer to the animal um, and maybe the newer reports that, you know, I've had happen. Um, you know, I'm always each and every week talking to a new witness and I still keep in, in touch largely with almost everybody in the past that, you know, I've dealt with. Yeah. Um, so now I'm closing in on a thousand um, witnesses. Wow. Um, when I did the book, the first one, I had 500 witnesses and now it's around a thousand, but um but like I said, about once a year, man, you'll get one. It's just, it's compelling. You know, it just leaves you with just no doubt in your mind, you know, that uh, that people are seeing something, you know, that's out there. Um, and, um, you know, we didn't talk about, you know, what it could be. And, and I don't know what it could be. Um, I mean, I think it's common sense. That the easy thing for it to be would be paranthropus or gigantic pithecus would be the easy things for it to be right um you know because 10 to twenty thousand years ago the land bridge was open we have fossils from those things in asia not paranthropus that would have had it came farther from south america or africa sorry and um you know so it seems like it made sense interestingly you know in the united states they'd say, well, we don't have any fossil evidence or anything like that. Well, you know, it takes, if you ask anybody, it takes around 10,000 years for a fossil to form on average. I mean, there could well not even be any fossils from it in North America. You know, it, the land bridge might not have been open long enough. Yeah. Um, you know, in Gigantopithecus, you know, there was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of that huge ape. And we have a garbage bag 
full of bones and little <laughs> fragments. Yeah. That's all we got. It's so, like a, a tooth and uh what was it? A molar, a part of the jaw? Yeah, molars, and it's got piece of piece of a jaw. You know, and I was thinking about that before I came on. I mean, you know, only about twenty percent of all animals do we have actual fossils for. Yeah. I mean, we just recently got them from for chimps in the last twenty years. Yes. I mean, there's animals that we know for sure that exist. Many of them that we don't have fossil evidence for. Yeah. I mean, so that's not a reasonable argument, but. Um, you know, now I think that, you know, if I had that advice, it'd be to try to try to think differently, to come up with your own ideas about, you know, how you could go about, you know, maybe it's that you're techie and you could do something with a drone and, you know, drones are becoming more affordable. You can get them with thermals now and, you know, you can go to a wilderness area and sit in the back of your truck and, and in your lawn chair or whatever. And then, you know, look at that area and maybe get something that would be compelling for people. Um, you know, I know that Todd Discotel, the scientist from New York University, said that he thinks that there's a way now that a Bigfoot wouldn't have to be killed in order for that to be uh, documented. But I just don't believe personally anymore that people are going to believe it until, you know, there's a body. Yeah. And I think that that'll happen. It's inevitable. Um, you know, I've interviewed three different hunters in West Virginia and one in Ohio that had clear shots with a gun, you know, and did not take a shot. Um, and I think it's inevitable that, you know, somebody will. Yeah. Do you, do you think they didn't take the shot? Like what, what was their reasoning? Was it because it was too human-like or? It was. Yeah. That's why it I'm, was. Yeah. I don't think I, mean, I could I can, do that. So. You know, I, I don't think the problem is it's like, uh, you know, like most of us don't like snakes. You know what I mean? Like you just, if you want to be in the woods, you learn to get by with them or whatever, but you know, if someone told you there was going to be a snake coming up in 20 feet, well, it wouldn't be such a big deal. But, you know, it always catches you off guard. Right. It's, that's the worst thing. <laughs> and I think that it's people go in the woods and they're not expecting to have a Bigfoot encounter of all things. And, uh, you know, we're just not mentally prepared for when it happens. And I can remember years ago, before we even had really coyotes in Ohio at all, and I was deer hunting with my family and my brother-in-law told me that he had seen a coyote. And I was like, why didn't you shoot it? And of course now, you know, it's a, everybody sees coyotes all the time, but oh, yeah. back then we didn't see any. And he's like, man, I, I just wasn't expecting. He said for an instant, I just thought it was somebody's dog. And then when I realized it was just gone that quick. Yeah. And I think that that's the way that it is with, you know, with Bigfoot. I don't know how many times that I have gotten close to bears and try to get my phone out and, you know, try to get a picture of it. And it's hard to get all that thing going in the right direction. I heard Doug Hijack, the guy from monster quest. And I haven't met Doug yet, but he's a bright guy. And, you know, he makes the argument that we all need to go back to the old cameras where, you know, they just automatically focus. All we have to do is just pull our hand up and take a picture. Yeah. And, um, you know, last year, I think that I may have had my first sighting and it was not a good one, but, it changed what I did and I started wearing a GoPro in the woods all the time. And, you know, I was at this, well, you know, I was at this park and I was at the park because two years prior to that, two guys had had a clear sighting. They were fishing. They had went into the woods just before dusk to get some firewood for a fire and ran into a Bigfoot and both of them saw it clearly very closely. And so I, you know, it's on my calendar. So here I am in that woods and, 
I, um, it had rained a lot the night before and I was there the next day and I noticed in the, there was no cars parked there where I parked and um, to get to where I was, it had been a three and a half mile walk through the woods for someone to get there. And when I was on the trail going in, I noticed that there was no tracks in the mud. No one had been in there or whatever. And Shade, my lab is always with me in the woods all the time. Well, he's always, he's trained and he's off leash, but you know, he's like maybe 20, 20 yards in front of me all the time. And I'm carrying a leash around my neck just in case I happen to run into somebody that's afraid of dogs or something. And uh, I came around the hillside and in my mind, I saw a, it wasn't very far from me, maybe 50 or 60 yards. It was a hiker that was buff collared all the way up and down and had a backpack on. And so as soon as I saw it, I mean, just in an instant, I just whistled, you know, for shade, probably not, just not even that loud. He ran right to me. I clipped him on. And probably in five seconds, I was walking. And as soon as I started walking, I realized the trail went away from where I saw it. And it had been in, you ever seen those Paul Paul patches that are in the woods? You know, oh, just yeah. kind of. And it was just about two feet above them. I, and as soon as I knew, I mean, probably wasn't a minute later, I was right there where it happened because I was suspicious. And there was a ridge there and I ran up to the ridge and I could see all the way around everywhere. And there was no hiker there. <sighs> And, um, you know, and I'd heard my friend, Matt Pruitt talk about this one time too. And I talk about this a lot, you know, when you're in the woods or even in your daily life, your brain tries to categorize stuff quickly and instantly yeah. with what it knows. And, you know, my brain instantly just said hiker. And, um, that was the reason why I switched wearing a GoPro because, if I'd been wearing a GoPro, then obviously I could have just went back and looked yeah. and I would have known for sure what it was. Yeah. Um, so that's why I keep that calendar, you know, keep a calendar of when you have a camera out and you don't get any action or you get a picture. Like many times I'll get something that could be an arm. It could be a shoulder. I can just see fur, but I just can't tell what it is. You know, keep it all in your notes and make sure that you take notes all the time. I'll tell you now, man, I go back and mine's on an iPad pro. And every time I look through pictures or every time I come out of the woods, I'm always sit down and write. And sometimes it just may be a paragraph saying, don't go back here this time of the year. Or some other times they'll say, I feel good about this spot. Let's, you know, go back here, but try this date or whatever it happens to be. And um, so for instance, I had this one place in Ohio that, I became friends with the ranger, the, the head of the park. And, you know, she had suggested places where people didn't commonly go. And so I had went in there and there was a road, it's probably like three or four miles long. And when I went in there and it was February 3rd and there was snow on the ground, but there was no tracks in there. So for two weeks, no one had been back this road and there's no trails back there. So I just went back there and parked. And then I just headed up this Creek and I'm, on both sides of the mountain on each side of me, or it's in Ohio, so let's call it a hill, I can see it's been clear cut and judging by the base of the trees and how they look. You know, I knew it was about 20 years ago. So there's always a lot of deer in those places. And so I'm watching the deer sign pass back and forth along the creek I'm walking in. And then I get up to the head of the hollow, uh, well, the, the hollow branches. And I'm like, this is a pretty good spot because all at once my deer sign just disappeared. You know, and there was some pine trees 
where sometimes the state, when they would clear cut, they would add a pine forest. Well, pine forest can be around 10 degrees or more warmer or cooler than the surrounding environment. So a lot of times things in nature will go to those. So, you know, I'm in this hollow, my deer tracks stop, and I'm in a place where there's pine trees and it's winter. I'm like, this is a good spot for a camera. So I put a camera out. And as soon as I put the camera out, I hear this wood knock. And if you're familiar in the woods and you hear a wood knock, you just don't, there's just nothing else it could be. Right. You just know. Yeah. And, uh, and my dog turned around and looked, you know, cause he heard it too. And it was maybe a hundred yards from us. And I said, that's where we're going, bub. And so, you know, I just started walking up that hollow further. And then when I got up in there, there was a steep little side hollow that came out and I thought, if I can just slip another camera in there real quick, nothing could see me. So I, you know, cause I'm usually carrying these cameras, like they have that um, lock on them. So it kind of makes a big loop and it's around hanging over me, kind of like a gunsling or something. Right. And, um, you know, I'm carrying a couple with me all the time. And so I get up there, I'm putting that camera out as quick. And as soon as I did it and was working on it, there was a home run knock, which as you know, is like, super loud knock close to you and it probably wasn't 50 feet from me but it was just in a spot i couldn't see and um you know so i started up that hall a little bit farther than i heard that samurai chatter which you know when you hear it it's like you can hear somebody talking and it might be another language but you just can't tell and to me it was something like and i could just hear that up in the woods and, and my experience had been and with witnesses is that when you hear that a lot of times they're they're rattled they're excited good or bad about something and um so it was almost dark so i left and um you know but it was, that's that one place you know i've been back in there at that time of the year continuously now the last two years since it's happened and i keep cameras in there all the time at that time of the year trying to make sure that i maybe get a break and get lucky with it wow Man, see, the closest thing I've heard of that chatter, that, it's what you got me on finding Bigfoot to talk about. It, it sounded almost like a like a giggle, kind of like a, a laugh, but with like an Asian accent to it. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but yeah, to, to hear something going and on. There's like things that. when you're, yeah, you know, Bo, you've been in the woods, you know what is natural. Now, if you're from New York or Chicago, like you, you know, you're probably afraid to even be in the woods, but. <laughs> I mean, any sound is something. I remember one time when I took a group out and there was a girl from Cleveland, a pair of sisters. And, you know, I'd walked them about five miles in using a red light. We got way back in the woods and I had them turn all their lights off. And it's probably the furthest they've ever been in the woods at night. Right. And as soon as we did, then there was an owl that started in. And, you know, like, it's not so bad if an owl is hooting, but they make weird sounds. They do. And that girl said, you know, what in the hell is that? <laughs> and so for her, for me, it was nothing. But, you know, the same way, like when you heard that samurai chatter, you know, you instantly recognize this is not something normal right. in the woods that I would hear commonly or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, you know, another thing is, you know, uh, Hugan and Sullivan was these biologists from Oregon, and they had had a sighting in the 70s. And they got consumed with it and they kept all these notes and they kept cameras and they'd walk with their cameras out. And I forget now, you know, how many times that they said they had sightings of like 10 or 11, they had experiences with Bigfoot, but they had said that 
in their notes, it took about 200 hours to have an experience to find something. Yes. So, you know, it's unreasonable and weird if people go out and think that every single time that they're going out, I'm suspicious that they're hearing or finding Bigfoot activity. Yeah. Cause you know, if you figure if I'm going out, you know, six or eight hours, a couple times a week, it's about two months before I hear something or find something, yeah. you know, and I think that that would be more common. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are interested in the woo type thing is because, you know, I mean, who wants to walk for like 200 hours near nothing. Right. Yeah. They want that. Experience. But you know, the, the one park that I grew up in Ohio, the most remote park there grew up hunting there all the time as a child. When I didn't know anything about Bigfoot, I hiked for four months, hundreds and hundreds of hours before, of course, this is all during the day before I heard anything. Yeah. But you know, that it's, it's sometimes there's large areas and you just don't know where they're at and you just had to bump. But once I knew and it hurt it the first time, you know, then every year I could go back and, you know, maybe get something around that same time. Yeah. Yeah, it's like when I worked at Chief Logan Park, I worked there for about four years while I was going back to school. And I was in the woods for my job. You know, I was clearing trails or running the wildlife exhibit. Um, and I, like I said, I did that for about four years. And then on the my days off, I was still up there hiking or, you know, fishing at the ponds and stuff. And I could probably count on both hands how many times I've, I've heard anything or something sounded suspect, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and that's probably... A couple thousand hours easy yeah in know. a primo place yeah yeah in a great location so i don't expect I, to I, ever go out and find anything off the bat i remember uh hearing wood knocks um one i think it was called rattlesnake trail on chief logan yeah and then i remember if you're fishing at the pond um and you're facing the lake you know from the road in and if you look straight in front of you on that highest hill that's part of um i'm trying to think of what that trail called uh, um that comes up the backside from the ranger's office and goes all the way around it comes out by the pond see um i used to be able to rattle them all off but i know that's the way with me i it's escaping me but you know it's relatively close to that area but i would stand up there many times and you can look down and see that parking lot yep. but to walk there is 45 minutes or an hour hard walk and i always wondered how many times did something stand right there where I was watching all those people? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's, and you get that feeling every once in a while, man, you know, it's, it's fun to think about that. There's something left out there for us to discover. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it all washes out, you know, and the, the mystery is solved or whatever, it's not, there's not going to be a, a minute wasted. It, it's fun. You know, it's, a, yeah. it's something fun to think about and to get into. So, and yeah. like you said, it gets you outside, you know, yeah, it's it gets that, you outside. It's a Some of my therapy. best friends are big footers. Yep. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been, it's shaped part of my life, which people would probably find weird, but, you know, I think a lot of times if people haven't had something that shaped their life, then, you know, you have to kind of wonder then, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what are you doing? Shouldn't there be a little something more for you out of life? <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you doing with your life? If you're not. Yeah. 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 I mean, whatever it is that shaped it. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Well, well I appreciate really, you, Bo. I appreciate you too, Russ. Um, again, I apologize for 
things not working out the first time. Oh, no, no, not at all, my friend. But uh, I think this this was even better, you know. Well, good. I'm glad. So if anything comes up, if you uh, if you want to tell your uh, the people that call in with to you, if it don't make the report or whatever on BFRO, you can still send them my way. I'll, I'll I'd like to talk to them okay. too. You know. Anytime. Yeah, I know you and I had talked about uh, that. There were some places down in Logan, some place that you wanted. Uh, you thought there might be a place to to go out, and I'd like to get down there and spend some time with you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I got well, I got a lot of time this summer, so. I'm working from home, as you can tell. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Holler at me. All right. I, I will talk to you later, Bo. All right, brother. Thanks. Have a good one, my friend. You too. All right. That's it for this week, guys. I hope you enjoyed listening to the show. If you just have to have more content, you can go to patreon.com slash the bump podcast and subscribe and be a patron. Uh, got more and more content on there every week. So I hope you enjoy that. Uh, to catch up on past episodes, go to thebumppodcast.com, click the episode tab, and it'll take you to any episode you want to listen to. Also, if you want to be on the show, I would love to have you on, share your story with us, go to thebumppodcast.com, click the holler at me button, and holler at me. Send me an email, thebumppodcast at gmail.com, and uh, I'll get you on as fast as we can. All right, again, thanks for listening. I love you guys. Until next time, don't stop believing.